Uh, I think about most importantly, quality. I think if you, if you buy very high quality assets, you're probably going to be okay. If you buy very high quality assets and there's inflation or there's deflation or there's uh, sovereign default or, you know, China becomes the dominant superpower or all these other things you could say from a geopolitical or macroeconomic perspective that frankly are all quite high uh, in their likelihood. Um, if you own very high quality assets, you're probably going to do okay, both on a relative and absolute basis. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with global investor and entrepreneur James Hickman, aka Simon Black. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with James, in which he provides the historical assurance that today's central banks will continue their annual trillions of dollars worth of money printing until the purchasing power of today's leading fiat currencies are destroyed, head over to our channel at youtube.com wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment perspective that James and our partners at New Harbor Financial share in this video. Oh, and if you haven't yet, don't forget to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Believe it or not, these two tiny steps really do help us out. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with James Hickman, aka Simon Black. What do you think are some of the most important you know, action steps that people should be implementing in their lives now based on some of these what we consider to be sort of highly predictable future risks? Uh, well, I, I imagine you probably want to talk mostly about financial uh, stuff. I mean, investments and markets, et cetera. Sure. Uh, but I mean, I, yeah. I know that you, you know, you live well, it's a, all, it's a huge resilient it's a lifestyle. Feel free to talk <laughs> about that too. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a big part of it, obviously. So if we, if we think about finance, again, it goes back to this idea of uh, investment selection and so forth. And look, I, uh, I am not a financial advisor. I'm not interested in being anybody's financial advisor. Um, I'm just a guy that thinks a lot about finance and and uh, uh, and make my own investment decisions uh, and and tend to write a lot about the things that I'm doing. Um, the way I look about look at these things is 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 quite simple. Uh, again, it's not a question really of when, um, because I don't really care when. Uh, I, I I care. It, it you know people say it's not if but when. It's like it's for me. It's not when but what. That's the way I think about it. And with respect to investment decisions, I think there's a couple of things to think about. Number one is uh, I think about most importantly quality. I think if you if you buy very high quality assets, you're probably going to be okay. If you buy very high quality assets and there's inflation or there's deflation or there's uh, sovereign default or you know, China becomes the dominant superpower or all these other things you could say from a geopolitical or macroeconomic perspective that frankly are all quite high uh, in their likelihood. Um, if you own very high quality assets, you're probably going to do okay, both on a relative and absolute basis. And there's a lot of ways you can define quality. It really depends obviously on the specific asset and the asset class. But if you're looking at, you know, something like say real estate, obviously, you know, the, the oceanfront, you know, marquee neighborhood kind of thing is probably going to fare better than some generic three bedroom, two bathroom house in a, you know, suburban Kansas city, uh, not to take anything away from suburban Kansas city, but it's not a trophy asset. Right. And, and so that's really what it is. It's, I think uniqueness, uh, clearly 
conveys, can convey is a factor in, in, uh, in, in quality. Um, when you're talking about businesses in general, I, I, I gravitate towards businesses. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a business person by nature. I'm an entrepreneur. I started companies, um, you know, through our various holding companies, things that I managed, we bought businesses, et cetera. I mean, we've sold businesses, taken companies public, sat on boards of public companies. It's a thing I understand very well, but the thing that I like about business is number one, unlike a lot of other asset classes, you know, for, for value to really go up a lot in other asset classes, um, most of those things are really out of your control uh, or you have limitations on how much, if you have a three bedroom, two bath house, for example, there's only so much value it can really increase, at least in ways that are under your control. You can replace the kitchen cabinets and open up that bathroom window a little bit more, et cetera. But with a business, uh, with a really great team of people, you can, I mean, you really have limitless potential. And that's the thing to me that's very interesting. Quality in business means quality people and, you know, putting together, you know, having the leadership and vision to put together something that's, that's bold that attracts, you know, rock star a players and executives and so forth. And this is the sort of thing, I think anything that really has limitless upside potential and a great business increases in value during inflationary periods, during deflationary periods, it throws off cash, which in deflation is one of the most valuable things you can have. In tough times, it consolidates market share because all the mediocre players go out of business. And in good times, it booms. So to me, it's, the, it's a great asset. And so to be able to sort of uh, have ownership, a large ownership stake or some ownership stake in a, in a, in a great business, to me, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a great asset. But there are, there are a lot of you know, other, other ways to, to look at it. But I just would encourage people in general to think about quality. You can think about bonds even as quality. Would you rather own uh, you know, the debt of, of, of you know, one person or one company or one uh, uh, sovereign versus another, um, you know, there, there's quality borrowers and, and, and less quality borrowers. So I think quality really matters uh, a lot. The other thing that I think about is, um, is I try not to, again, think about asset classes. I don't look at property versus this versus that, but I, if, if I think about it at all, I try and think about things sort of the ultimate hedge to me are things that are uh, as uncorrelated as possible to central bank policy. And that's, when you think about it, that's really hard to do, right? Cause you can think about, you know, you can look at something like gold and, uh, and, and silver and so forth. Silver, I would, I, I, I would argue is actually more uncorrelated than gold. Um, simply because silver has so much industrial use and some of that supply and demand and industrial use is not necessarily tied to central bank policy, although much supply and demand in the broader economy is actually driven by central bank policy. So I spent a lot of time thinking about what are the things that are really totally outside of, of and, and, and you could always make an argument that there is some central bank influence in just about everything, but I've come down on certain asset classes and things that we've been getting a lot more into lately. You know, I've been in agriculture for a very long time. Agriculture is interesting because um, there is some central bank influence um, depending on the specific uh, assets. So if you're dealing with the big, you know, grains, corn and wheat and soy and anything where you've got futures contracts uh, that, that trade, even frozen orange juice and coffee and these sorts of things, you're going to have a lot more central bank influence relative to, you know, a guy that's got, you know, a, a, a peach orchard. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't see anybody trading peach futures in Chicago, right? And so because of this, 
it's going to be more pure towards supply and demand. Um, I would argue in agriculture, probably the purest um, and most uncorrelated asset is water, uh, because that really is a function of, of supply and demand and, and has virtually uh, almost nothing to do with central bank policy. Uh, has has obviously a lot more to do with government policy because you have governments that come in and make restrictions on uh, on water rights and things like that. But it has very you know a lot less to do with central bank policy. Uh, on that end, I would also argue that um, uh, carbon credits, especially in the voluntary market, have uh, a lot less correlation with central bank policy uh, than certainly other major asset classes like stocks and bonds. So I think about these sorts of things, and, and I've been making um, a lot of moves in, in, in these markets. You know, I've been in agriculture for a long time, obviously the non-grains, the, 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 the smaller stuff that doesn't have the futures contracts. We've been at that for a long time. Uh, we own a lot of water rights as well. Um, and we've been, you know, making a lot of investments in in uh, carbon and carbon credits in the voluntary markets as well, and some other things. Those are just some examples. Um, but I think, you know, uh, I think having as a hedge, having things that are as uncorrelated as possible to central bank policy, to me that makes sense. Uh, it might make it might not make sense to other people. I think you know you should always try and invest in the things that you understand. Um, and these are just things that that we've gotten a really good understanding of over the last ten years. All right. Well, you know, James, you and I know each other and have known each other for years. Um, you are very successful at what you do. So I just want to underscore uh, to folks watching here that this isn't just sort of some like armchair list that James just thought up during this uh, this interview. This is stuff that he's been putting into practice really his whole his whole life, but certainly for decades and, and being quite successful at it. And just to summarize for folks, James, you know, kind of what I heard you say here was, um, in some ways, it's a return to old school active management, where it's mm. it's not by the index, by the asset class, and and let it ride um, the way in which I think the vast majority of the market's been investing for the past decade plus. Um, it's really getting in there and, and looking for good individual businesses, uh, good management, um, you know, opportunity to uh, you know drive the business uh, by multiples, no matter what the macro uh, environment is doing. And, you know, everybody can do that with publicly traded companies. You got to do your homework, obviously. Um, there's opportunities to invest in private companies as well. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to be an accredited investor or whatnot to do that, but, but the range is more limited in terms of options. Uh, or you can actually go out and be an entrepreneur yourself. Um, that's a lot of what James and his team uh, will do as well. Um, he talked about quality. Um, you know, basically, the, the higher the quality, the, probably the better um, store value it's going to be over time. Um, and then you talked about uh, trying to find assets that are under-correlated with whatever the central banks end up doing. You gave a couple of good examples of that, the precious metals, kind of niche ag, water rights, uh, carbon credits, et cetera. Um, so thank you for giving you know, such specifics for folks. That's exactly why we, 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 we do these videos. Um, I do want to just ask about gold for a moment um, mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, because you you mentioned it, uh, that both that you recently bought a gold mine, you talked about it as a relatively uncorrelated asset. Um, and also, I, I read a recent piece that you um, wrote about peak gold, about the fact that there really have not been that many major discoveries in you know recent decades. Um, is there anything more, I guess, you want to say, uh, opine about, about gold? Um, it tends to be a topic we follow relatively closely on these videos. And I know we have a lot of people who are either gold owners or potential gold owners. Um, 
as you're looking ahead, what are the reasons why you're, you're, you're buying gold? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I think that, uh, I think that gold makes sense. I, I, gold is, um, a little bit dangerous sometimes because there are people that come to a certain realization that they don't want to be in paper anymore and they go all in on gold. And me personally, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be all in on anything. Um, I've talked to people, I've spoken with people that have told me that they're a hundred percent in gold. And again, I just don't, I don't know that it makes sense to be a hundred percent in any, uh, in any asset or asset class. I mean, you're really taking a lot of risk, no matter how sure you are about something. Um, gold has a lot of things going for it, for sure. Uh, if you look at the data and you really want to be intellectually honest, um, however, there are periods of time where if we look at, for example, the last 10 years, obviously, and you look at between stocks and gold, the stock market has you know, the stock market performance has completely battered that of, of gold. Um, you know, over a previous 10 year period, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, gold was by far uh, a better place to be. You know, and if you, you could cherry pick dates and say from this date to this date, gold is better, but from this date to this date, stocks are better. But the reality is nobody invests that way. Um, you know, nobody does a lot of, we get emotional about stuff. We get scared about things, you know, we, and we, we make decisions, which again is also really bad. Our species is terrible. Uh, that sort of stuff. We get emotional, we make emotional decisions. By the way, that's why I love behavioral economics. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It really, it really shows as, as rational beings as we're supposed to be, we are just horribly irrational or as Dan Ariely, a famous behavioral scientist says we are predictably irrational when it comes to money. That's right. Exactly. So, um, it's, it's nice to, you know, think about, oh, if this, and I did that, but, but again, most people don't, don't do that and they don't invest that way. So the other thing I would sort of point out is that it's not a competition, you know, nobody's going to put a gun to your head and say, you have to either own this or that nobody says you can't own both and it's perfectly fine. So it's not a competition. You can have gold, you can have crypto, you can have stocks. You can even own bonds. You can do whatever you want, and it's totally fine, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? That's still at least one freedom that you have, is that you can own all these different types of assets. So gold, I think there are a lot of reasons to be uh, bullish on it. I don't think you should ever make an investment decision without being able to also find reasons to be bearish on it. If you can't see both sides of it, you're probably not looking hard enough and asking the right questions. I can think of reasons why gold, um, you know, might not go up. A whole lot um, over the next, you know, however many years. But for me, um, the I have a I have sort of a, a shorter term view and a longer term view. And I think yes, yeah, so in terms of peak, and I'm doing the air quotes, peak gold. Um, I think that you know tight supply fixes itself over time. Uh, if tight supply induces higher prices, then guess what? There's going to be a whole lot of other guys go out and start, you know, kicking rocks and drilling holes, digging holes in the earth. Yeah. Right, digging holes in the earth, and and that's going to happen. And there's going to be suddenly there's going to be this bonanza of projects, and everybody's out there with gold, uh, talking about their pounds in the ground and all that stuff that all the all the guys in Vancouver love to talk about. So, you know, that's that's seemingly inevitable, and I think that's going to fix itself over time. Uh, they just haven't had uh, where where we are right now is is interesting because inflation, you know, gold was a was an asset that just. I mean, it was flying off the shelf, silver even more so. And yeah, we had there was a shortage and all sorts of things last year. Uh, prices kind of peaked in August. And it was funny, it actually rose so quickly. And it was in August, almost like within 24 hours, I think, of the peak. And I sent a note out to my readers and I said, 
this feels like it's a little bit overdone. You know, this is kind of too much, too fast. Um, and, uh, and, and that was like literally within 24 hours of the peak and it's kind of stagnated since then. And yet the S and P keeps going up and all these other things have happened. Um, and yet at the same time, as inflation has increased, we've seen a relatively stagnant gold price, but gold mining costs have increased. And if you look at Barrick and these guys and actually look at their, you know, the cost of their mining operations, their marginal costs are up substantially. And, you know, that's, that's, I mean, in a way, I mean, that, that, that should also pretend higher gold prices over time, because there's going to be a lot of people that don't have that economy of scale. And they're going to say, you know what, we can't really afford to do this anymore. Um, eventually, some of those guys are going to go to business, and that's going to create even more uh, of this sort of peak gold phenomenon. So uh, these are among the, I think, the many reasons that you could find to be bullish on gold prices, um, especially over the, over the short term. And I say, let's say over the next five years. Um, cause I think, again, I say five years is short term because I, I try and force myself to think about things over a 20 year plus time horizon. So when I say short term, I mean, literally over a period of several years. Um, but I think a lot of these factors can be very positive for gold prices primarily because yeah, these, these, uh, these, the cost of pulling an ounce of gold out of the ground and refining and so forth, the transportation costs, et cetera, it's just going higher. Uh, and that hasn't been reflected in the price. So that's that's a major reason for it, but I think long term, I don't I don't think the world's going to run out of gold. I think there's a whole lot more in the ground, and uh, I think it's just a question of price uh, that motivates mining companies and exploration companies to get out there and find it. All right, uh, again, uh, a very well detailed and nuanced answer. Thanks. There's so many other questions I want to ask you here, James, but uh, I've taken way too much of your time, so I want to try to land the plane here as gracefully as I can. I do want to ask you this question, though, um, one to shine a light on uh, some of the, the great work that you do um, beyond just investing. Um, you educate tomorrow's business leaders through the Sovereign Academy. And I wonder if you could just briefly speak about that and what it does. Um, but in your answer, if, if you can also um, just share, like, what are the personal qualities or values uh, or skills that you see as most valuable uh, for those who are looking to build wealth or their careers, you know, when you, when you see talent coming through, what are, what are some of the things that you really either look for or recommend that they focus on building? Uh, first part of the question is the easy one. So I'll tackle that one first. Uh, yeah, law, it just goes back, what, uh, 10, 11 years, 12 years, something like that. Um, we started a foundation in Lithuania and every year did a, held an annual entrepreneurship workshop and and uh it was uh became quite a competitive thing people had to apply from all over the world and any given year we'd have people from brazil nigeria russia japan you know all, all over the world that that came um and we'd spend five days basically giving them almost a, just a crash course in in uh in business and it's been it's been very interesting. Uh, it's been one of the best things that I've been a part of, uh, and and um, it's it's really been an honor and privilege to uh, to have done it for so long. Last year we didn't do one uh, for obvious reasons, and um, uh, I think we're kind of running out of time this year. It's just it's it's hard because you talk about physical travel, and people said, oh, you could do it online, but it takes away the the experience. Uh, I think doing that sort of stuff online. So we'll see when we're able to to resurrect it and get back on schedule. With respect to um, the, the the second question, in terms of you know 
what are the what are really the skills? I would say when we were talking about assets and asset classes and, and something that you mentioned, and I was going to, but I think my answer is getting a little bit long-winded. Um, you mentioned entrepreneurship and starting a business. And, and I would actually encourage people to also consider this uh, entrepreneurship as an asset class. If you think about it this way, in a world where you've got supply and demand, and if you think about supply and demand for investments, supply is, you know, I'm not going to say supply is fixed, but there's only 500 companies in the S&P 500. And demand is a function of all the money that's in the system uh, in a way. And so that keeps going up. They keep, they keep printing more money. There's more money in the system. And so you have increased demand for a fixed amount of investments. Quality investments, really high quality investments. I mean, you think about how much garbage there is just in the S&P 500. And you think about stuff that's not in the S&P 500. I mean, it's just a lot of garbage investments. And so creating a quality investment for other investors to invest in, creating a quality business, uh, or even just a, a kind of a short-term, more speculative deal, a real estate project, whatever the case may be, something that's actually a quality deal. Um, you know, if somebody wants to make money, I would actually argue that's this is the way to do it, um, as opposed to as an investor saying, oh, uh, well, as me, there's nothing to invest in. I can't find anything good. Everything's expensive. Well, then be on the other side of that, right? Be on the other side of that and be the guy who's out there. You get to name your price uh, to all the other investors and say, this is what I got. We are a quality deal. Um, and, you know, hey, you're, 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 that way you're doing everybody a favor. You're helping them actually put money in something that's extremely high quality. So to me, the the right deals are, are really things that are, uh, you know, and everything is different. You're talking about a, a startup venture versus, uh, again, a real estate project, something like that. Everything's different. Fundamentals of everything are different. But at the end of the day, it is it, not to be cliche, but it's the people that that makes, you know, makes it all happen. And so it, you know, when I talk about quality investments, it's really quality people. And I always look for, um, you know, I went to, to West Point and in 1995, Norman Schwarzkopf came to the academy and addressed the Corps of Cadets to talk about leadership in the 21st century. And Norman Schwarzkopf, in case people are too young to know that name, was the commanding general of uh, basically the first Gulf War in the 1990s. Colin Powell was the four-star commanding general of Central Command. Uh, and Colin Powell, who later became Secretary of State, was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who used to give the press conferences in Washington. And so the two of those people saw a lot of in the early 1990s. So Schwarzkopf came to the academy, addressed the Corps of Cadets, and he said, leaders in the 21st century have two characteristics. They have competence and they have character. And if you only have one of those or none of those, you're not going to make it. But if you have both of those, you can be an incredibly successful leader. And I would argue, as an extension of what General Schwarzkopf said, you, I think you can be successful in anything, life, investment, business, et cetera, with competence and character. Uh, and this is what I always look for, whether I'm investing in somebody or I'm hiring somebody, which I also consider an investment. I consider hiring somebody a major investment because it's not only uh, you know, money, but time. I look for people with competence and character, talented people of integrity. And uh, you know, to me, if you can assemble that, you've got a quality investment. You know, Talented people of integrity marshaled behind a vision that you know, makes the world a better place, creates a tremendous amount of value for customers, delights customers, something that's actually innovative and cutting edge. Again, with people, a team that has both competence and character, you can raise a lot of money 
for a project like that and become extraordinarily successful and benefit from all these things that are going on in the world. Um, it's a different set of skills than trying to find a great investment, but it's just another set of skills. Well, that is just excellent uh, and a great way to close up here. Um, folks watching, if you think we should do a video on um, entrepreneurship and kind of the nuts and bolts elements of it, uh, let me know in the comments section below, and I'll take that into consideration on who we book next. Uh, but Simon, just as hoped and, and as I knew you would be, uh, it's just been a wonderful conversation here. You've uh, delivered an entire a string of pearls of wisdom here. So thank you for that. As we wrap up for folks that have enjoyed the, the conversation and are maybe meeting you for the first time here through this video, if folks want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Uh, you know, the, the website that, uh, that we write at is sovereignman.com. Okay, great. I will put that up on uh, that URL up on the screen here when we edit this so that folks can go there and check it out. Um, anything else? Or is that pretty much the main place they should go? Pretty much, pretty much it. Yeah. All right. Well, Simon, thank you so much again. Congratulations again as well on the birth of your new first daughter. And uh, I know I'm going to actually be seeing you in person in the not too distant future. And uh, right. I'm looking forward to actually being able to crack open a couple of beers with you. Me too, Adam. Thanks so much. All right. And as we do every week, I'm now going to talk with the lead partners at New Harbor Financial uh, to get their reaction to Simon, as well as to talk about what the markets have done since last week. This week, I'm joined by John Lodra. Uh, Mike Preston is away from the office. John, great to see you again. Good to see you again, Adam. Thanks for having me. All right. Looks like you are connecting in from somewhere remote as well, just as Simon did. Where are you? I am. Well, so we're, uh, my wife's birthday was yesterday, so I promised her I'd get a, get away for a couple of days. So here we are on a, a little island off of Massachusetts for those that aren't familiar called Mar Martha's Vineyard, but uh, ah. hard, hard, hard to say we're away. It's about a, uh, you know, three mile as a stone, stone, you know, as the crow flies from the mainland. So. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see which island has a better Wi-Fi connection, Martha's Vineyard or Puerto Rico. Uh, but most importantly, happy birthday to your wife. John. All right. Well, look, let's uh, let's dig right in. First, uh, just yet another wonderful expert discussion. Um, curious to hear what reaction you had to uh, to Simon's commentary there. Yeah, no, Simon's a, a very um, prolific writer and commentator, and obviously he's got a lot of really cool perspective from the various vantage points that he is involved with as a as an investor, entrepreneur, uh, commentator. So, really appreciate his comments. Um, a couple of things that, that really stood out for me is um, well a lot of things, but I'll just I'll just pick on uh, you know pick out a couple because I think they're really interesting. One, he talked about um, time frames and really uh, long term thinking, um, and he used that in a lot of different contexts in terms of inflation, but also investment horizons things like that. And I think that's a key point. It's one that I think folks oftentimes um, maybe get confused because the 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 what happens in the short term can oftentimes create um, uh, unsustainable trajectories that folks tend to project out into the indefinite future in both directions. Um, so that, that's a key one I'd like to touch upon. Um, I think he also touched upon a really, well, you know, one of the things I think he pointed out that is, is commonly pointed out with your guests that are, are looking at data and, and understand markets histories is, you know, um, how, how utterly, um, controlled and, and distorted markets have become because of central bank monetary policies, right? Um, I don't think he said much in the way of, hey, this is a market that, you know, you should be buying because, hey, uh, stocks are undervalued or 
their sound investments. It was more like, you know, kind of, you know, more of the, we've been forced to do this kind of thing. Uh, but I, I want to tie that back into the, um, the time frame thing as well. But he also talked about quality, uh, you know, quality companies, quality investments, not just stocks and bonds and things like that, but, but outside that. And, and um, the, 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 the kind of one final thing I'd like to call out is, is his um, focus on, um, you know, things that are uh, uncorrelated or, or not really in the realm of, of publicly traded markets. You know, uh, he talked about what I think we could probably call private equity or private company investing, direct investing in private companies that um, have, you know, good management teams and, and can actually create um, what he calls enterprise value, which is just simply um, uh, capital appreciation potential by the way they can grow their business. And, and typically we're talking about smaller, lower middle market companies that I think uh, he, he's probably involved with. Um, so, so, you know, I'm just kind of throwing out some, some random points there that I, that I think were really interesting takeaways that we could certainly explore uh, quite a bit further. Well, you know, one of the things you said that um, I think is particularly germane to, you know, your role as a financial advisor is he said that, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of re-entering the period where you really have to do your homework as an investor. You've got to be picking good individual companies that have ability to create value. The ability just to sort of ride an index ever higher, uh, you know, it seems like a those days may be numbered. And I know on many previous videos here, you and Mike have shown charts from John Hussman and a number of others showing that, you know, based on his history, um, when we've had markets at this level of valuation, it actually looks like the market is set for negative annualized returns for the next decade plus, right? So I think Simon, you know, very much sort of echoed that uh, we can't rest on our laurels anymore as sort of lazy investors, and we actually have to begin to get good again at uh, you know researching, picking the uh, the wheat from the chafe, uh, and doing really what investment investors and investment advisors have been doing, you know, for decades and decades, which is you know having to actually find you know what's good out there and and try to invest in what's good and not in what's bad. Um, so uh, you know, to me, that that really says to a general investor, hey, you know. Um, Either, either get serious about taking on that responsibility yourself or partner up with somebody who has that mindset and, and that skill set and can do that for you. Um, I assume that you probably have a number of people that you're talking to these days who are coming to you specifically for that type of skill. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. And I, you know, this, you know, the last 20 years, and, and maybe even you can go back farther, I would say has been um, have been markets that have been driven by indices, you know, the, the uh, adoption of index investing on the auspices of you know low cost and this and that it's great in theory but you know what we have uh, what has resulted is this um, indiscriminate um, levitation of, of markets and companies even you know junk companies companies that are not profitable they're they're maybe make a good story and stuff like that and in fact if you look at um, every or most every uh, historical episode of uh, overvaluation you might might use the word bubble, which we're, we're certainly uh, willing to use in the environment we're in. Uh, usually those are, are, are defined by all stocks rising, but especially those that are the least quality, lowest quality. And I've got some charts that I wanna share in a moment here, but, but this, this, you know, the levitation in markets, certainly in the last few years, but also over the last decade, uh, fueled by, you know, money printing and, and distorted um, price signals uh, has given a boost to, you know, some of the 
the junkiest companies out there that, um, you know, there's no fundamental good case to be made for the, 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 the values they're trading at. But even quality companies have, have risen to valuations that are not justified um, by the underlying fundamentals. At the end of the day, the price one should be willing to pay for a stock or the market in general is of present value of the future earnings potential. And if you go and, and look at the earnings potential, even of good quality companies, it's hard, very hard to justify current valuations. All to say that in this point of the cycle, and with a long-term mindset and an understanding that this cycle is, you know, probably only one half of the cycle because we're at, you know, literally all-time um, high valuations, there, is, there will be another side to this. And that's the, the full story and, and uh, even great companies. You know, so um, Simon talked about investing in, you know, good quality companies with good managements that you know. Um, that's kind of the, the way that Warren Buffett does things, right? And his company, Berkshire Hathaway. But make no mistake about it, Berkshire Hathaway is holding records of, you know, I think record amounts of cash right now because they don't see uh, ample investment opportunities to put that cash to work, even though cash seems like the hot potato of the day, right? But even, even in, in periods of time where uh, markets get as frothy and overvalued as, as they are today, even great companies like that can suffer share declines. You know, so for example, if you look at the most recent, which now seems a, like a, you know, uh, eons ago, major market decline, the, the 07 to 09 housing bubble bust. Um, you know, if you go from October 07 to March of 09, roughly, which is the peak to trough period there, uh, even Berkshire Hathaway lost almost 50% of its value, right? So, so, you know, great companies, great managers can get overvalued and become bad investments, uh, at least from a, for a certain time frame. So that's why, you know, we think you know, doing your homework also means knowing or, or, or having the discipline to, to say, yeah, this is a great company, but it's the wrong time or the wrong price to buy it at. And um, yeah, so, so I, I pulled together some charts that I want to share um, with, with the viewers here. And, and Adam, the first chart I'd like to share is um, there's, there's, there's three charts that, that um, actually work in, in conjunction. And this, this goes back to, uh, you know, that, that period of 2008, you know, that last um, bubble, because this is very instructive. If you look at the first chart, um, it's, it's from a piece that um, Bill Hester, who's a, an analyst at Husband Funds, you know, we, we, we frequently highlight Husband Funds because they do uh, hands down some of the best objective research that's not a, you know, opinion based, just data. And they, they pull the data out and, and, and uh, tease out some, some really interesting conclusions. So this chart goes, looks at the period from uh, 2003 through 07, basically the run up to the bubble peak. You know, that was the bottom of the tech bubble bust to the top of the housing bubble peak. And what it shows is four colored lines here, um, you know, by quality of stocks. So you got lowest quality in yellow, you got low quality, I can't make up these colors, but the point is the lowest quality stocks, you know, rallied the most from a, from a starting base value of 1.0 up to over 3.5 and the highest quality stocks rallied the least. Okay, and that was in the, the bubble phase and the, and the ramp up to record valuations. I would say that's probably a, a fair, in fact, the data suggests that's a fair uh, dynamic to, to ascribe to the, the, the market rally over the last several years, um, that, that the lowest quality has, has been rewarded the most. But the other side of this is the next chart. If you look at the next chart, it shows the period from, uh, you know, that same starting period, January of 2003, but then into uh, late of 2008. This is as of December of 2008, not even the, the final bottom of the housing market. You can see all those low quality stocks, that performance was given back and then some. So, you know, it feels great when it's going up and that's, that's this, this FOMO fear of lefting, being left out that, that oftentimes sucks people in. But then the other side is that is it's given back typically in, in 
just as profound, but oftentimes a, a faster manner than it was, was gained on the way. And then the third chart in this series uh, basically looks at, you know, uh, quality ratings, you know, A plus being the best quality and, and C being the worst. And this is the year to date. Uh, uh, at this time, this was a publication in December of 2008. So it was year to date, almost full year 2008. And you can see um, the, the lowest quality stocks were, you know, hammered the most. But even the good quality stocks, the A plus stocks, were lost over 30% uh, year to date at that time. So because they, like all stocks across the board, you know, obviously there's single stocks or you know, handfuls of stocks that didn't you know, follow this trajectory. But as a class, high quality stocks got punished more than most people would be willing to, to subject their capital uh, at risk. And I would say, you know, given where we are in the overvaluation scheme today, we're far more overvalued than we were in the peak of 07 leading into the housing bust. So I think it's all about um, timing and, and discipline and making sure that you don't overpay even for the highest quality stocks. Uh, those are great charts, John. And uh, I, I just want to chime in on them on an important point here, which is we, we talk a lot about on this program how because of current policies that um, have really punished savers, punished cash holders, uh, because interest rates have been held to, to record lows, that everybody is sort of forced out on the risk curve. We use that term forced out on the risk curve, which means you have to get into riskier uh, assets in order to get any kind of return on your capital, right? So you might not like it, but if you, you know, if you're a retiree and you need that income to live or whatnot, or appreciation to live, meet your expenses, you have to go out into those assets. And the problem is, is that we have, uh, they have intervened for so long that people have gotten accustomed to that level of risk. And they're now treating that risk as, as low risk or, or riskless. I, I sort of think of it like, you, you've been pushed out onto really thin ice, but that thin ice hasn't broken for long enough that you're sort of treating it with a confidence like it's concrete, uh, but it's really not. So, you know, the danger here, as you're showing, is, is that riskier assets, they actually are outperformers in highly speculative errors, um, but they're the ones that re retract and get hurt the most when you have a correction. So now we have everybody out on the risk curve, kind of at this point, kind of forgetting that it's risky, and they are very, very vulnerable to a potential correction because the very risky assets they're in are the ones that are going to correct hardest. Did I, did I sort of summarize that well? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I, I really your your, uh, your words there, Adam. They're, they're words that are important words. You know, you, uh, and I, I think you use these words not necessarily, um, you know, kind of in a literal sense, but in a kind of an emotional sense. Uh, you, you describe the the feeling or the sentiment of folks that they have to invest in, in riskier assets. They have to, to get the returns. And that have to is, is a psychological have to. It's not a um, mechanical or, or uh, you know, because you don't have to do anything. Um, you know, being patient is certainly a choice. It's a hard choice. Uh, one that is uh, every demon and every temptation out there is, is making it very hard uh, to follow. And that's why we, we really, I mean, we try to be humble, first of all, we try to ground ourselves in data and, and, um, you know, the, the problem with these things is you cannot um, perfectly time the, the, the psychological, you know, um, sucking of folks into risk, uh, even though the data makes it pretty darn clear, unless history will, will never even rhyme again, uh, it's pretty darn clear that these are horrible prices to be investing in, even for most good quality companies. Uh, and that's why, you know, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway still sits on a big 
or just the cash. And you know that stock, is, as I already pointed out, is not immune from major downdrafts, just like the rest of the market. Um, but uh, that, that have to, the sense of have to, is is a, is a really uh, troubling thing. And you know, just today, you know, just to kind of pick some some sentiment out there, you know, uh, Leon Cooperman, who's a, a billionaire, a successful investor, you know, basically invests his own money now. I don't think he manages client money, but but his quotes in, a, in an article I, sa- I said to, I saw today is he, he basically I'm going to read verbatim. The market structure is broken. Um, you know, when there's a real fundamental reason to, for the market go down, to go down, it's going to go down so fast your head is going to spin. There's no stabilizing forces in the market right now. When the market goes down, it'll move so fast your head will spin. It's all algorithms. Oh my gosh! I mean, you know, that that sounds, you know, it's 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 the it's the reality. I think, you know, you 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 know, very few folks of his his ilk are, are out there saying. You know, hey, this is a market that's fundamentally sound that a prudent investor should be in. It's more like, hey, this is a casino. You know, it, it may be good while the getting's good, but you, you know, look out when the uh, when the slot machines start going in reverse. Um, you know, uh, and and uh, you know that that I think is the reality, and it's a very painful psychological reality. To, you know, look, we we do work with clients from all walks of life and income levels, and you know, we we most of those clients do come to us for our perspective and discipline and uh, enlightenment of, of the likely, you know, pathway given the data. But at the end of the day, our clients' assets are their assets. We're, we're here to help them, you know, kind of, you know, gauge their own uh, degree of wanting to kind of play that dance. You know, we think it's a tough dance. You know, we'll, we'll be the first to, to uh, you know, suggest that, you know, um, to, to use an analogy that you've used and, and is very apropos, you know, picking up nickels in front of the steamroller. Um, we think that's a, a very fine analogy. Um, you know, at least we have tools that we can help folks. Um, you know, if they do want to kind of go out in the risk risk spectrum, we can do so and put some belt and suspenders or some lines in the sand that no matter how bad things got or or how how ill timed that decision might be, at least we can put some 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 circuit breakers, if you will, through hedges that that can help you know uh, define their their personal limit to how much you know uh, downside they're willing to accept. And um, you know it's 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 hard, you know probably the hardest waters to navigate in the history of investing, and certainly from being in the seat of a financial advisor like us. At least when one looks at the data and isn't willing to just kind of blindly say, "Hey, you know, I'm willing to you know gamble my clients' hard hard-earned money uh, in, in in something that you know is a slogan, pretty much that don't worry, the Fed will let, won't let the markets go down." Great. Well, it's really good to have you say all that, John, because I know so many people watching this video are feeling some days when they wake up um, that they might be taking crazy pills um, because they prudently see all the warning signs you do, but uh, the world around them just seems to ignore them and and to date has been getting rewarded for it, right? So it's very helpful to ground people back in the data, back in the fundamentals, back in the the perspective of history uh, so that they, you know, potentially don't make the mistake of being one of the greater or greatest fools that finally capitulates, you know, right before there's a potential big market correction. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the big reasons why we recommend people work with a financial advisor uh, like you guys doesn't have to be you guys, but like you guys who understands the risks and the major, you know, defining trends that we talked about with Simon and understands the uh, the data that we're talking about here um, is, you know, there's risk management, which is what you just referred to there, which is if you're going to be in this market, 
it is a, a very treacherous market, like you said. So you want to have some insurance. You want to have, you know, some circuit breakers, some defenses in case, you know, the market goes against you. Um, secondly, you want to know what to be in and what not to be in. And that goes back to the kind of gumshoe detective work that we were just talking about. You want to actually be picking the right companies. And then you just want to know, you know, whether to be in or not. And you just gave some great charts there. I want to put up two here quickly that I, I took from Charles Hugh Smith. Uh, the first one here um, basically shows uh, the uh, well, the rise in the S&P over the past couple of decades, but also the rise in the number of uh, companies that are trading at greater than 10 times sales, um, which you know is kind of a classic sign that markets are hotly overvalued. And you can see that our current height just completely dwarfs not only the dot-com bubble, but the housing bubble as well. Um, and uh, we've just never been at this level of just sort of insane willingness to overpay for companies. So, you know, when you're looking for signs in your dashboard that say uh, we are in extremely overvalued territory, this, I think, is a fantastic example. Um, and you were talking about Leon Cooperman, and it is interesting, there are more and more uh you know, billionaires that are coming out and really criticizing this market, which I find kind of interesting because many of these guys have made their, their fortunes through a lot of the uh, excesses that, that we're railing about now. Uh, but here's another chart from Charles uh, that shows how the wealth of the top 400 wealthiest Americans, this is the top 0.00025% has increased since uh, right before the pandemic, uh, where it was trading at about 15% of uh, total US GDP. Um, now, post-pandemic, as of this May, this isn't even a completely up-to-date chart, um, it's gone from 14% pre-pandemic up to about 19% now. So that's an overall one-third increase in the wealth of the 400 wealthiest people in just a little under two years. Um, it, it's just ridiculous how broken these markets are where the wealth is, um, uh, you know, A, prices are, are hyperinflating, but also um, uh, the wealth is getting increasingly and acceleratingly concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And this type of, of price success and this type of over-concentration, these are just classic hallmarks of the end game of uh, a speculative mania. So um, back to the, the point of, of knowing, you know, kind of when to be in or not, uh, you, you really want to rely on data like this or people like you who are watching data like this uh, to, to help you kind of, you know, prudently determine where to place your capital. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I think the, the signs are always there at the top. It's just, it's just, uh, you know, hard, hard to kind of lose, uh, easy to lose perspective as to, to, to where things are in the cycle. All right. Well, look, uh, talking just very quickly about the markets as we wrap up here, um, markets seem to be a little shakier than normal. Um, you know, we've had sort of up, down, up, down, up, down days recently, which is, uh, you know, love your thoughts on that, but it looks like it's, even though we're still near all-time highs, it looks like we are not definitively uh, punching higher yet. Um, I know we mm -hmm. talk a lot about David Hunter and his, you know, melt-up prediction. Um, if we're melting up, we're taking a pause here beforehand, but if we're not, and there's, there's more and more major, you know, Wall Street institutions that are now warning about a coming correction, they're using like 10% uh, as an estimate, um, nowhere near the sort of 50 plus percent that Grantham says, or the 80% that, that Hunter says. Um, but we are seeing, I think, more worry bleed into the market right now. Um, we also saw the cryptocurrencies 
which I see as sort of a very kind of canary in the coal mine for risk on assets. Uh, they just took a pretty massive drop a couple of days ago from really from out of the blue. Um, so what are what are you seeing as you're looking at the markets right now? Yeah, there definitely is, um, you know, some stalling that you can you can see not only in the top, you know, kind of, in, you, know, uh, you know, top line numbers, the index index numbers uh, you know, today, you know, today just one day, but we were down in the futures over overnight. Market shot up uh, right at the open, and, and now we're back in the red. So you know, modestly in the red right now as we speak today. You know, again, not not any particular thing to be drawn out of that, but it but it it, it is a continuation of somewhat of a uh, uh, deteriorating pattern that we're seeing. Um, if you look at some of the breath indicators, uh, you know, really generally, you know, kind of a that's a term to say how many stocks within this broad market are actually participating in, in, in likewise reaching all-time highs with the, when the ex, the, that breath has been deteriorating on, on some measures that are really, really important. So yeah, it does have a, you know, a stalling effect, you know, at a time when, you know, um, some of the easy sale uh, tailwinds have been, you know, uh, you know, some of the, uh, you know, um, Unemployment benefits are are run, running out. Uh, the eviction moratoriums, I think, have just uh, you know on the verge of of declining um, or, or expiring. You know, there's and and, and you know all the stimulus that uh, you know was was fired off in response to um, to you know COVID uh, last year starting to to run out. And unless that bazooka is re reengaged, it now uh, rests on kind of the real economy to to replace all that. And, and we're talking about a historic amount of debt expansion over the last uh, 12 to 15 months. That's a tall ask for even the healthiest of economies uh, to, to try to replace. Um, so, so to think that that's gonna be an easy thing, even with a healthy, vibrant economy is, is frankly, I think a bit, bit naive. And just one, one more thing I wanna point out, and this is just another data point. Um, the market is, you know, the, the implied uh, risk assessment of the market is is implying much more downside. So let me give you an example. You know, if if you look at the S and P 500, and this isn't investment advice, this is just uh, to paint a picture. You know, I was looking at uh, for a client uh, last week. Um, you know, if they if they invested a certain amount in, in the S and P 500, just using an ETF to track the S and P 500, and say they wanted to put some hedges in place to limit their loss, but but rather than pay for those hedges out of pocket, you know, we could do what's called a collar. A transaction where we sell call options to to you know uh, allow a certain amount of upside but give away upside beyond that that level and use the premium that we're able to get paid for selling that call option to, to buy the downside insurance. So we looked we looked at some scenarios. Well, what if what if let's use David Hunter's you know projection of a further ten percent roughly upside to this market. If we if we sold a call option with a strike price about 10 percent higher from here, that would bring in some premium, very modest premium, frankly. Uh, and if we use that premium to buy insurance, we'd, we could only we could only set the insurance about forty percent lower than here. So, so it's very asymmetric. In other words, for only ten percent uh, upside potential, you can only afford insurance protection that's a full forty percent down from here. So it's very skewed. You get very little upside relative to the downside the market is pricing in. It's just just where things are right now, um, and it's it's a very tricky market. Yeah. Well, all right. I think we'll have to end it there. Um, it's uh, really interesting that you just mentioned the um, uh, expiration of the unemployment benefits and the um, the expiration of the foreclosure uh, and uh, rent evic uh, rental eviction moratorium um, and the approaching uh, fiscal and monetary cliffs. Because I just 
published a video about that uh, yesterday. And so folks watching this, if you wanna get uh, deeper into those data, uh, you can watch that quick video. It's only like six or seven minutes. But to John's point there, that is a massive, it's actually an unprecedented amount of support uh, that's been issued in an unprecedentedly short period of time. I think it is largely responsible for the massive uh, recovery that we've seen in the financial markets since last year. Um, of course, it's also driving a lot of price inflation elsewhere too. Um, that looks like increasingly like it is going to disappear or at least mostly disappear. And that is gonna have a big deflationary downward pressure on prices at some point. So um, anyways, we got a lot coming up because of that. Um, John, uh, thanks so much. Um, I will let you have just the last word here right before we, uh, we break. But uh, I know you're talking to people day in, day out uh, who are you know, nervous about the markets, trying to protect their wealth, looking for opportunity. Uh, for anyone who's watching, who is wrestling with those types of questions, what would your parting advice be? Yeah, I think it would it'd be first to get some appreciation for where we likely are in the cycle by having some historical and data perspective. And then it becomes a question of, you know, where do you want to put your faith? I mean, um, investing is always a faith-based act, whether one realizes or not. Um, but usually folks are rewarded when their faith is put into things that are timeless and, um, you know, kind of tracking back to sound fundamentals, not, you know, uh, you know emotionally and psychologically tortured you know, decisions. Um, it's usually the sound and, and, and rational decisions that in the longer term pay out. And that, that's, that's, again, keying in on, on uh, one of Simon's comments about long-term focus. It's really important to not get blinded by what's happened over the short term here and, and that markets have levitated because over the longer term, um, that will likely mostly, if not all, be given back and, and then some. So it's, it's really important not to lose focus of the bigger picture. Great point. And for new viewers, um, if you uh, aren't already aware of this, uh, we here at Wealthion strongly recommend that given how treacherous this market is, uh, very few people have both the investing prowess to really stay on top uh, of today's market environment uh, and to trade the cross currents that we're dealing with right now. Um, so we highly recommend that you work with a professional advisor uh, who can guide you, but ideally a professional advisor who is familiar with a lot of the, the trends, issues, and data that we've talked about here today with Simon and John. If you've already got a good one, great, keep them. Uh, but if you don't, John uh, and his team at New Harbor Financial, they offer free consultations uh, to anybody who wants to have a conversation with them where they will give you their completely free, no strings attached advice on what they think you should be doing. And they do this as a public service because they wanna to try to help as many people as possible prudent themselves, uh, position themselves prudently before whatever corrective action might happen in the markets here. So they just want to help people preserve their wealth. Uh, if you'd be interested in having one of those chats with them, stick around at the end of the this video. It's coming up in just a second. Uh, we tell you how to do that, and it it's only takes you a couple of clicks to set up a call with them. All right. And then uh, as we close up here, uh, if you want to see who's coming next on this program, and we have a lot of great guests lined up for the next couple of weeks and months, folks. Uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Menlo Bear. I share uh, who our future guests are going to be, and I listen to your suggestions on who else you'd like to see on the program. And in closing, to help support this channel and help us continue to get great guests like Simon, uh, please just like this video and then click the subscribe button as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Super easy for you to do, but it really, really does help us out. And whatever the markets do from here, we'll be tracking it together. John, me, you, Mike, and everybody watching and whatever happens in the next week, we'll be here next week to talk about it. Thanks for joining.
We will. Thank you, Adam. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type, the kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.